As we go through this book of Acts, I think it's a special time to remember what it is, how special it is to be able to gather and worship the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, uh, just like they did in the earliest days of the church. So the word waiting. You know, last week we looked at the first 14 verses of the book of Acts, and one of the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples in those verses was to wait for the promise of the Father to arrive. He said, wait for this promise to come. And that's where we pick up the story today. Uh, the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus are waiting for this thing that he promised. They're waiting for this thing that he promised. And, um, you know, I think as humans, we find it hard to wait, don't we? Have you ever, have you ever had like, uh, uh, something that you've been waiting for for a long, long time? And then when it gets here, it doesn't turn out to be quite as good as you had hoped. <laughs> In fact, maybe it's the opposite of what you had hoped. Uh, for example, uh, kids do this all the time, right? They're for, for their birthday or for Christmas. They're wishing for this gift and they get the gift they've been wishing for. Maybe it's a new toy or a Lego set uh, and they put it together and within a week... They've kind of forgotten about it, right? Their whole life was going to be different. Maybe it's a new video game, a new device. Uh, and then within a week or two, they're done with it. And they're waiting for the next best thing. Uh, and, and that wait wasn't really worth it. But you know, it's funny. It's not just with kids, not just kids who struggle with that, right? Adults do the same thing. Uh, we do that with, with possessions. You know, maybe I just got to have that brand new TV or that new car, uh, whatever it is. And you're just waiting and anticipating to get it. But guess what? No matter what it is you wait for, it either wears out or wears off, and you kind of get tired of it. You know, we wait, we save, we anticipate, but it all ends up wearing off. But this morning, we're going to look at the book of, or the, cha- the chapter, Acts chapter 2, uh, and here is where the apostles receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what they've been waiting for, uh, what God's people have been waiting for, for hundreds and even thousands of years. And so when they receive this gift, what they realize is it's even better than advertised. Not only that, we see that it, uh, even though it takes them, I think, by surprise, it takes the people around them by surprise. It's something that doesn't wear out or wear off. In fact, it gets better with age, I would even say. It explodes. It multiplies throughout the entire Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, like I said, you know how we forget about gifts after a while and you quit using them, you lose your interest? Well, my hope is this morning that after we look at how the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, we'll realize that this isn't something we need to forget about or lose interest in. Because here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is just as powerful today and is just as active in your life as he was in the early church. In your hearts, and just like the apostles, I want us to anticipate and continually keep looking forward to what God is going to do in your hearts, and in your lives. So this morning, let's look at how the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 uh, and how he comes to us today. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Uh, the words are on the screen, but you can just listen or uh, follow along in your Bibles as I read these verses. So the, the word says this. Uh, actually, hold on. Got a slide out of order. There we go. All right, so the word says this. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the amazing mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, in verse 13, others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So this is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to have kind of three sections to our message. We want to talk about the event. That's the first section we just read. The first 13 verses talk about the actual event of how the Holy Spirit came. The second part we're going to talk about is the message. Uh, There's actually a message that Peter gives, the apostle Peter gives, to explain what just happened. And then the part we don't want to miss at the end is in verses 42 through 47, uh, the effect that this all had. And so that's kind of where we're headed this morning. Uh, but we're going to start with this event. And so when you read this event, in fact, if you read those first 13 verses and you read how, how Luke wrote about this, it's almost like he's saying, I don't even know how to describe this to you. And, and he's just grasping for metaphors and grasping for pictures that he can give. And, and I thought to myself, what would it have been like if the apostles... Somebody in that room would have had a a smartphone, right, and had recorded that for us so we could actually see what happened uh, or had put it on Instagram, something like that, so that everyone in the whole world could have pulled it up and watched it. Would that have been better? I don't think so. Actually, uh, as you look at this, uh, in fact, not just uh, nowadays, we would say, well, I'd like to take a picture or take a video so I could capture what it is. Throughout history, this event has really captured the minds of artists and they've tried to draw pictures of it. I want to show you a couple of them. Uh, here's one where you have all these men sitting around there. They don't look real happy, do they? Um, and uh, they've all got little flames on their heads. Um, here's another one, same thing, little flames of fire, just this, this idea of trying to figure out what in the world did this event look like? How do I describe it? I think the way that God describes it in scripture tells us everything we need to know about it. And so God paints for us a word picture. And I want us to look at that picture of this event. So we get just a little taste of what it is that they experienced. And so if I was going to choose two words to describe it, I want to use that this morning. One of those would be extraordinary. Okay. When you read this event, it's extraordinary. What does extraordinary mean? That means extraordinary. It's not something that ordinarily happens. Even in the book of Acts, this is an extraordinary event. There's a lot of extraordinary things that happen in Acts. But this thing that kicks it all off following the ascension of Jesus is extraordinary even by the standards of Acts. So what's going on here? What's the picture that is painted? Um, one thing you first see in verse 2, uh, if you look at what's emphasized here, it says um, in verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So there was a sound of something they could hear. And what does Luke say about it? He says it was like a mighty rushing wind. Now, none of us can pretend to have the ancient mind, right, or to understand what they would have been thinking or or feeling. But I was thinking about this this week, and I'm thinking, 
What's the loudest sound that an ancient person could have heard? Because they didn't have cars or airplanes or trucks or car crashes or, you know, music that's on speakers like we have. Like, what could have been the loudest thing they would have heard? And, and so what Luke does is he says it's the sound like a mighty rushing wind, like a storm. And if you think about it, that's probably one of the loudest things that ancient people had ever heard is if you have a storm like a hurricane or or a tornado sometimes people say tornadoes sound like trains uh just this mighty rushing wind or the picture i kind of get in my head would be like like a um like a jet an airplane just that roaring wind just blasting through the house and and notice it doesn't say there actually is a wind it's a sound like a wind so this is what they heard just this amazing loud sound but it doesn't end with what they heard uh, verse 3 it says, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So they saw something too. There's these little tongues of fire of some kind. So it looked like there was fire on top of each one of them. And so, you know, the pictures I showed you, it looks like a nice little candle wick, you know, a nice little peaceful fire. We really don't know what it looked like. Sometimes I wonder if it looked more like a blowtorch, just like streaming off the top of their head, flames resting on top of their heads. So there was something they heard, something they saw, and then we also see that they did something with their mouth, something that they spoke. And this is maybe the most amazing thing. They saw and heard something that looked amazing. It was a sign that something amazing was happening here. But what they actually did might be the most amazing thing of all. They opened their mouths to speak, and in verses 4 and 5, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And here's the amazing thing about the things they said is that they spoke in languages they didn't even know. They could speak and all these people who were gathered in Jerusalem at the time from all around the known world could hear them in their own native language. How amazing is that? It's what we call a gift of the Holy Spirit. Everyone could understand. So when you read this little section of scripture. There's a lot of people who really focus in on Acts 2, 1 through 13, and they say, well, if that's how the Holy Spirit came to them, that's how the Holy Spirit's going to come to me. And if I haven't spoken in tongues, then I guess I don't have the Holy Spirit. Um, and so what we need to realize when we read the book of Acts is that there are a lot of things described in Acts uh, that are not necessarily repeated for every believer. In other words, there's things that are described, but they may not be prescribed for every person. And so uh, even in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit coming on other people, but it's not visible through the speaking of tongues. And, and they didn't hear the rushing wind or the flames of fire. In other words, this was the first time that God's Spirit had arrived to indwell his people forever. And so he made it really, really extraordinary. It was out of the ordinary, and it was amazing. You know, an example of, of why we know that the Holy Spirit, even here at Trinity Church right now, doesn't look like this. Uh, God hasn't chosen to pour His Spirit out in this way. If God had, we wouldn't need to be launching a church next door, would we? <laughs> All of our uh, Spanish-speaking speaking brothers and sisters could sit here uh, like they normally do, and they could hear me speaking in English, but they would hear it in Spanish. Uh, but for whatever reason, God at that time chose to pour out His Spirit uh, to spread His gospel in this event in that way. It was extraordinary. But the second word, uh, when you read through that passage of how do you describe the coming of the Holy Spirit? How do you describe this? First one's extraordinary. The second word is fulfillment. Okay, fulfillment. 
In other words, what happens here in these first 13 verses of Acts 2 is a fulfillment of so many things that have been promised. So many things that have been promised. Uh, the first thing, uh, last week, uh, Amy read the verses from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. So it's fulfilling that promise that Jesus made in Acts 1, 8. He said, You're going to receive power. Here's a visible demonstration of that power. They are speaking in languages they don't even know. And so it's a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made. But the second thing it's a fulfillment of is you have to ask, well, why this day? Because we know this happened uh, 50 days after the crucifixion, and it was 40 days. It says Jesus was with them for 40 days, and then a few more days happened until the Spirit came. Why did God choose to send the Spirit on this specific day? I think if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you'll get the reason. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Uh, what is this? In fact, if you have King James or New King James, there's a great translation they give. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come or had fully arrived. Uh, and so what's the deal about this day of Pentecost? Uh, this is something you can't miss when you look at Acts chapter 2. Okay, so Pentecost is one of the feasts in the Jewish holy year. Okay, so they had three big ones that everyone had to come to. You've probably heard of at least one of them. One of them is Passover, right? So everyone in the whole Jewish nation was supposed to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate these high and holy days. Passover was when they commemorated uh, the release from Egypt, when God set his people free from Egypt in the book of Exodus. Passover is when Jesus was crucified, uh, when he was dead buried, and then resurrected. That all happened at the time of Passover. Well, then uh, what they had was the next big feast was called Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Um, and what that means is it was a week of weeks. And what does that mean? That means seven sevens. So there were seven weeks after Passover was the Feast of Pentecost. And so what is Pentecost? If you, if you know Greek at all, penta means five. And so you had seven weeks, and then the, which is 49 days. And then on the 50th day, you celebrate that feast. Uh, so that was why they called it the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. So here's something important. Acts 2 talks about Pentecost. This is not the only Pentecost. This is like Pentecost number 1500 because it's happened every year since the Israelites came out of Egypt. Okay, And here they are celebrating Pentecost again. Guess what? All these people from all over the world, all these Jewish people have traveled from every corner of that Roman world to be in Jerusalem for this celebration. Some authors that I read this week said that this celebration, uh, Passover was very solemn. Yes, it was a celebration, but Pentecost was a little more of a joyous jubilation type celebration. They were celebrating two things. One was the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So they finished up wheat harvest and then, uh, which was the first harvest season. And then they were getting ready to have all their other harvests. But they would take time to pause at the end of that harvest to thank God for what he gave them, for what he provided for them. Uh, and then the other thing they were celebrating was 50 days after they left Egypt is when God gave them the law on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, where we have the Ten Commandments. So those two things were being celebrated. But through the years, this became a ginormous 
jubilant celebration. In fact, somebody even said it was like Mardi Gras. And I thought, oh, well, we can identify with that. Everybody comes home. Everybody goes out and just celebrates. Uh, it's supposed to be a religious celebration. Most of them were making it a religious celebration, but there was all kinds of other things going on as well. Either way, it was a huge celebration. People from all over the world came back to Jerusalem to celebrate this thing together. So there's a couple things I want to point out here. Uh, number one, if we're celebrating the first fruits of the wheat harvest, if you think about where we are in the history of God's people, this is the first generation of people who have known the risen Christ, who have seen how he came to make atonement for their sin. And so they're celebrating as the first fruits what God has provided for them. And the second thing is that in, in the first Pentecost, they were celebrating the giving of the law where God gave them the law of Moses, the list of rules they had to follow to have a relationship, to be in relationship with him. So there's some similarities, actually, between Acts 2 Pentecost and that first one. Because if you go back to Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus 20, when, when God came down on the mountain to give them the Ten Commandments, it says there was the sound of a storm, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was the sound of a trumpet, all these things they could hear and see. Pretty terrifying, actually, if you go read it. It shows the picture of the holiness of God. And then God gives them these rules. Well, here in Acts 2, we have the sound. We have the things that you can see. Again, the fire descending on the apostles. And yet, there's some differences here. Because remember, in Exodus, Moses had to go up and talk to God. Only Moses could do it. Anyone else who went on the mountain was going to be killed. A little Old Testament history for you. But here... God's spirit comes and meets and dwells with every person who has trusted Christ. Not just one priest, but to all the people. So when we think about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it's really a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to read a couple of verses here. This is talking about uh, God's promise when he will make a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember Exodus 19. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each one say to his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what you have here. The Passover and the crucifixion of Jesus with Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit after Jesus goes back to heaven is the fulfillment of all these promises that were made in the Old Testament. Where God says, I'm going to come and dwell with you personally. You'll have access to me not through a priest, not through the temple, but personally through Jesus Christ. So that's all what's happening here on this day of Pentecost. That's why we call this the fulfillment uh, and there's just a lot of loaded language in those first 13 verses. That's the event that happens. It's extraordinary. It's a fulfillment of all these promises. And so what do we take away from that first section? I would say it's a couple of things. Number one, realize that if you know Christ, if you've trusted Jesus, he has fulfilled his promises to you. 
He has fulfilled his promise to you to give you the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You understand what that means? The Holy Spirit came to the apostles at Acts 2 Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes to us, to any of us who believe in Jesus, the moment we believe in him. The Holy Spirit fills you, comes to dwell in you, and is walking with you even today. He is here with you today. That's one, is realize that Jesus has fulfilled his promise to you. And then start to think about what that means. But the other thing is, do you realize also how extraordinary this is? That God lives inside you. God has peace with you, not because you're good enough, but because of what Jesus did to pay for your sins. And God lives inside you. How extraordinary is this? I think it should result in worship. That's why we gather here as a family of believers, because we recognize what God's done and we worship him. We pour out our praise to him for what he's done. And then as we see in the book of Acts, you serve him. When you realize how extraordinary this gift is, you take it, you use it, you embrace it, and you serve him through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first part of our our sermon this morning is this idea of this event that happened. But, you know, like if you read through the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what happens a lot of times is Jesus will do something amazing. He'll do a miracle. Uh, And then the people will all say, wow, that was awesome. Do another one. Or, wow, what was that all about? What does that mean? And so then Jesus will give an explanation or a message about what that miracle meant. We see that happening in John 6 after he fed the 5,000 people. We see it happening uh, throughout the Gospels. And it's no different here in the book of Acts. Uh, Look at what the people say after this happens. Uh, Chapter 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, some people say the only explanation could be, verse 13, they are filled with new wine. In other words, these folks are drunk. That's the only possible explanation for why they could be doing this kind of stuff. That's what they say. Uh, You know, uh, it's funny, Peter in verse 14 stands with the 11 in verse 15. He says, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody gets drunk before then. Now I've never tailgated in Baton Rouge, but from what I hear, it does happen. Okay. And, uh, uh, but, but, but Peter is saying this is not the norm. And so he says, there's a different explanation than these people being drunk. And let me tell you what it is. And so he gives us a message in verses 14 through 41. You know what I want to do this morning, something a little different than we normally do. Usually we read the scripture at the beginning of the sermon and and I read it, but I've actually invited uh, Pete Basarico to come up on the stage and read it with us. So come up on here, up here with me, Pete. Um, Here's the deal. I would like for all of you to listen to this message from Peter, from the mouth of Peter, not this Peter, but, uh, but from the original Apostle Peter, and just listen to it. We're not going to put the words on the screen. Just listen to it and try to receive it in the way they might have received it. And so uh, here's the message that Peter says to the people to help explain the event that has just happened. So I'll turn it over to you, Pete. 
But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness at your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right. Thank you, Pete. So you might say, wow, that was a, a short sermon. And, and if that one resulted in 3,000 people coming to know Christ, uh, Marcus, maybe you should just preach shorter sermons. Um, but go to the end of the chapter, it says, and with many other words, he exhorted them also. So, okay, I'm off the hook, right? So, uh, but Pete, thank you for reading that. It's in, it's incredible to me that when Peter gave that explanation, it was exactly what those people needed to hear at that time. And they understood exactly what was going on. And they said, what should we do? And so what we see, you know, uh, in this message, uh, here's the word that we already saw. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. If you noticed a couple things, I want to point out three things just briefly in this message. One is the fulfillment of Scripture. Three times Peter quotes Scripture in there. Three times. And, and here are the three texts. If you have a Bible with footnotes, you can probably see all these. The first is from the book of Joel, which we studied this summer, uh, one of the minor prophets. And the big thing is he says uh, in this book, what you see is that today, what you see with the Holy Spirit being poured out is a fulfillment of what God has been promising for hundreds of years. What you see today is God pouring out his spirit on your sons and your daughters. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, is what he says. Psalm 16, here's the next thing he says. What you see today is also something you need to remember something that happened about 50 days ago. And that would be the crucifixion of Jesus. And he said, the amazing thing that you're seeing today, and this, this is what fulfills scripture, is that Jesus didn't stay dead. What does it say? God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes David, who spoke in Psalm 16. And, and it's like he has like a little illustration here. He says, uh, you all know David died, right? Even though David says, I will never see decay. He says, you all know David died. You can look over there and see his tomb. It's right over there. You all know where it is. You know where the cemetery is for the kings. Uh, David died. So what was he talking about? This is a fulfillment of Scripture, a promise fulfilled. Only Christ could fulfill this, that death could not hold him down. So what you see today happens because of the victory that was won 50 days ago, which was promised during the days of David the king. He is not dead. That's the second thing he emphasizes. Then the third thing in Psalm 110 is that he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, this person who was crucified and dead and buried and then resurrected, this person, Jesus, is the king of the universe. That's the person that was killed. Now, and he also says in there, uh, whom you killed. You know, it's really interesting because probably the whole crowd that came for Passover was not the same crowd that came for Pentecost. It was a whole different set of people. Uh, and so it's likely that a lot of the people he was talking to were not even there when Jesus was crucified. And yet he says, you crucified him. And I think what he's saying there is all of us who are sinners had a role in putting Jesus on the cross. 
He was nailed to the cross because of the sins of these folks, because of the sins of you, because of the sins of me. He died in our place. And it's a fulfillment of Scripture. The king was crucified, but now he is alive and well. And so then you say, well, what happens as a result of this? What's the effect? We're going to come to that in just a minute. But when people see God's word at work, it's amazing what happens. When God's word is working in their hearts, it's amazing what happens. But the second thing I want to mention here is not only a fulfillment of Scripture, but also a fulfillment, again, of Christ's commission. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. So you see here, Peter, it says, bearing witness. He's already doing what Jesus predicted he would do and what Jesus asks us to carry on doing. It's a fulfillment of Christ's commission. It's the beginning of this multiplication process that you see in the book of Acts. God said, I'm going to multiply the gospel to people all around the world. And, you know, today, even as we think about the church meeting next door, the congregation, Dulce Refugio. I'm going to try to get that pronunciation right before it's all over. Uh, they're meeting next door. It's multiplication. You know, we have some empty seats in the room this morning because those folks are now meeting over in the FDC, worshiping in Spanish in their, in their language. And, you know, while we miss them, you know, I miss seeing their faces here with us, worshiping with us. Yet we know for the good of God's kingdom and for the good of the church, this is something to celebrate. Where there was one church, now they're becoming two churches. And more people in the community will be able to reach because they are holding a church service in Spanish. So we need to celebrate that. A new church is being birthed. And also, the other thing about that is when you send people out to plant a church, new, some of the seats are empty, right? We now have more seats to fill, more seats to bring people in, more souls who need to know Jesus for all eternity. We have space for them. So let's work on this mission. Fulfill Christ's commission. But again, here's what the result, here's the, the, end, the thing that happened after Peter gave this message was an invitation. An invitation. He says, these people say, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? In other words, they embraced the gospel. They understood that they were broken, that they needed something. They needed something from Jesus. They needed to be rescued. They needed to be rescued. It was like a cry for help. They were convicted of their sins, which, by the way, is, a, is another fulfillment of Scripture. John sixteen eight. I want to read this verse for you. When Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, listen to what he says the Holy Spirit will do when the Holy Spirit comes. John sixteen eight. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We see this happening right here in Acts 2. These people are cut to the heart by the one whom they pierced, by the one that we pierced. And so it's this invitation. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's the invitation? He says to them, repent. That means turn away from those sins that are destroying you and turn to Jesus. Cast yourself on him. And this isn't, when we talk about faith and turning to Jesus, we're not just talking about adding Jesus to what you've already got going, right? That you're already pretty good, so if you get Jesus to come alongside you, then you're going to be really good. That's not the gospel. 
C.S. Lewis actually said this. He said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms in absolute surrender, knowing that God is the only thing that can save me. It's not me trying to hold the world up and saying, God, give me a hand here. Help me. Save me with me. God says, no, you must surrender fully to me. I'm the only one who can save you. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. So God says to repent, turn away from your sin and turn towards Jesus. And then be baptized as a proclamation of your faith. Proclaim to the world. And uh, repentance and and baptism are tied together in a lot of places in Scripture. Leading some to believe uh, that they need to be baptized in order to be saved. But if you read all of Scripture, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, not because you're baptized, so that no one can boast. Baptism is a result. It's it's a proclamation. You're proclaiming to the world of what God has already done in your life. And if you've never done that, I would invite you to do that. It's a powerful testimony. It's a powerful sermon that's preached uh, through, uh, through action, not just through words. That's what baptism is. Proclaim to the world that Jesus has saved you and then realize that you have the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. You will be for for the forgiveness of your sins. And then look, it also says the Holy Spirit comes. So here's the question for you. When you think about this message, this message that we have, when you hear the message of the gospel, this invitation, the question is how are you responding to that invitation? Because I would say to you, even if you've already responded in faith and said, yes, I trust Christ, um, you're still responding to the gospel each day. And you can really choose to respond in three ways. Everyone who hears the gospel responds to the gospel. You can either embrace it, hopefully through faith, uh, and once you trust Christ, you're always saved. You can reject it and say, no, I don't think that's true. I'm done with it. Or a lot of people just kind of ignore it which is another form of rejection. They say, eh, I don't really think it matters. I'm just going to kind of bide my time. God says, in this example we see here in Acts 2, these people were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do? When you hear the gospel, you realize how broken you are, just like Peter lays out in the sermon. The only chance you have is to turn to Christ. He is your only hope. If you've never done that, do it today. And if you have done it, walk with him. Continue to turn to him every single day. How are you responding to him? I would encourage you to turn toward him. Turn toward him. And then that brings us to the last part of our message today. First we saw the event itself. Then we see the message. And then just briefly, the effect that we have from the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is really a picture of how we are to respond to the truth that we've heard. And so I want to read for you verses 42 through 47. This is the effect. Um, Verse 41, actually, it says, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what do we see as far as an effect? Two things. One is transformation. You think about who these people are that are being described. They're called the Galileans back in verse 7. In other words, they're just common people, uneducated. Now, I've lived in the South long enough that I think I can call myself a Southerner, but when you, there are other areas of the country that look at the South and they say, oh, they're Southerners. <laughs> and that's kind of what we got going on here. They're Galileans, people. They're fishermen. They're not that smart. And God says it doesn't matter how smart you are or how wealthy you are or how beautiful you are or how ugly you are. God says I can take any person and use them in a powerful way. Transformation. He transforms Peter, this person who stands up to preach. Remember the last time we heard much about Peter was back at the end of John when he is denying Jesus three times. And then God forgives him, transforms him, and here he is proclaiming the gospel in such a powerful way that 3,000 people come to know God in one day. An instant megachurch, if you will. The church is born. So transformation, it's like a caterpillar uh, who grows into a beautiful butterfly. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit transforms people. When the Holy Spirit comes, people change. And that's what God's doing in your life. That's what he's doing in my life. He's transforming us to the image of his son. The second thing, the second effect is gospel community. This is the birth of the church. This assembly of people who now share these values and say we are on this mission together. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to go and bear witness and tell the world about the Savior who came, who died, who was buried, and who was raised again, and now is sitting at the right hand of God. Gospel community. Two things I want to point out here. Acts 2.42, you heard this. It says, and they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, in other words, the word of God, uh, to the fellowship, to time with one another. Um, to the breaking of bread, to sharing meals, sharing life with one another, uh, and also sharing Holy Communion with one another, and to the prayers. You know, these are the things that help explain what happens in the book of Acts. This gospel community that's created. When God's people devote themselves to these things, the world changes. Your town will change. Your home will change. And the world will change. And then another verse, Acts 2.46, and it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Okay, so what I wanted to just point out in this last little paragraph is that when you look at what their hearts were like, one, it says they were devoted to those things, and two, it says their hearts were glad and generous. So if you have a devoted heart, you have a glad heart and a generous heart. If we as a people have that kind of a heart, God can do amazing things in our midst. And so how do you know if you have a devoted heart? How do you know if you have a devoted heart? I think if you look at what makes you glad, what do you find your joy in? Is it in lasting things or is it in temporary, earthly things, things that change and go away? Is it the things of earth that make you happy or is it the things of heaven? It's only one type that can make you happy for all eternity, and that's your relationship with God. And then also this idea of generous hearts. 
With whom or how are you generous? Are you generous with your time for yourself? Or for people who look like you or act like you or talk like you? Are you generous and gladly generous with people who have needs? People you don't even know. I think that's one of the ways God says that we can see if we have a devoted heart. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And they had glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers, day by day, those who were being saved. And that's my prayer this morning as we look at this passage, Acts chapter 2. The event that happened when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit comes to us today. You have what you need to go out and let God use you. You have the power of the resurrected God living inside you. We have the message, the message of the good news of Jesus, that people are broken, but Jesus can save you. How do you respond to that? Ask people to respond to that. And then lastly, the effect, transformation. God says, I want to transform you. I am transforming you. And that's his promise to us today. And so that's where I want to leave us today is just with this call to transformation. Let the Holy Spirit work in you. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. And let the Holy Spirit use you powerfully to change the world. If you will, please stand with me. We're going to close with a word of prayer. I'm going to say a benediction. Uh, and this is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, which I think captures exactly what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. Let's pray. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything that we could ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in all the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.